Welcome to the New Mana Podcast, an Arch KCK production. Welcome back to New Mana, your newest favorite Catholic podcast on the Holy Eucharist. My name is Lee McMahon, your host, and I serve as consultant for evangelization at the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. But don't be fooled if you've got a pulse. This podcast is for you. If you're hungry for more, if you are fed up with the empty promises of the world, Jesus has more for you. So today, lucky you, we're jumping into part two of an amazing conversation that I had with Father Edward Ahn. He is the associate pastor at St. Michael the Archangel in Leewood, Kansas, and we just had such an amazing conversation that we had to cut it up into two little sections for you. So without further ado, here's the episode. So the Lord, I sense that the Lord was calling me. He made it very abundantly clear. I know in July of 2004, during, in fact, in the context of a Eucharistic Holy Hour, it was such with such abundant clarity that I couldn't deny such overwhelming mm. peace and joy. I was just giddy. But it, was, it wasn't like a, an emotional, it was just, just a deep, deep peace and that just left me grinning ear to ear. And I just knew that the Lord was calling me to celibacy for his kingdom for the rest of my life here and, you know, for into eternity. What is celibacy? So yeah, celibacy is that state where we do not enter into, we willingly give up human marriage or sacramental marriage to live already um, heaven on earth, that eternity to be united with our Lord as a, our Lord says in the gospel there are those there are some who renounce marriage uh, for the kingdom of heaven so having that clarity at that point there was such a freedom Uh, you know i would think that i think i still qualify as being a millennial and i know i don't i don't want to i don't say this in a a light-hearted manner but i definitely would have been i think one of those who would struggle with commitment, and yet that's never been an issue uh, by God's grace. Just having that clarity just gave me so much freedom to know, oh, this is my commitment. Now I have complete freedom to lean into how the Lord is calling me to live this out. So from that moment Mm -hmm. onward, I said, wow, praise God. And I was really discerning marriage and dating relationship, but it was just a liberation. I could focus all of my efforts because I have crystal clarity that the Lord is inviting me to have a unique spousal relationship directly with yeah. him and so i'm going to invest all in so that from that point i'm like well and in many ways because it's um not as common here on earth that one really needs to spend even more time to spend that really that uh continuing to foster that that daily intimacy right it's it's a uh, it needs to be fostered on a da- on a daily basis. Yeah. So by God's grace, I really felt called to a state of life that would permit me, give me the freedom where I wouldn't have to apologize for spending significant time in prayer. And so I felt called to this religious community that was nascent or starting at that time in Rome. And we just had the freedom to be able to spend four hours a day. That's actually part of the rule. And the rule in this case was just so liberating because I that was one of the things I kind of felt like, I was. I needed to apologize or come up with excuses of why I was spending so much time in prayer because people might think like, shouldn't he be doing other things or more important things or like working? And so it just gave me this remarkable freedom to know this is my primary responsibility to spend undivided, give the Lord undivided attention. Hmm. 
So I was part of that religious community for 16 years. It's really, really grateful. And of course, one of those things was already what I was already fostering, uh, that Eucharistic holy hour on a daily basis. You know, maybe one thing that I can kind of share with this, um, with regard to priestly ordination, one of the questions that was posed was, do you believe you're worthy of the priesthood? I said, well, no, I don't believe anyone is worthy of the priesthood, but the Lord still calls people. Yeah. And one of the tremendous graces that he offered to me was very much at the very beginning in 2005 when I uh, began seminary or with uh, this religious community, the Lord offered me this beautiful grace to really protect my heart Yeah. because he knew he's so gentle and he's so merciful and he wanted to kind of protect my heart from certain temptations. And one of those temptations is uh, from grasping after the gift. I believe that there are three macro level three possible responses um, before a gift that's offered to you by the giver. So ideally the response, the appropriate response is to receive. And we know we're receiving well when we experience gratitude. Hmm. However, there's two other responses that are not appropriate. And one is uh, grasping after the gift and of course the other would be just flat out rejecting the gift Hmm. but um i think i have a tendency to grasp and knowing that and the lord is so good that he just wanted to provide me almost with like a prevenient grace and make it easier on me to be able to protect my heart from this Hmm. grasping after the gift because um, there's a mutual responsibility in light of the gift and the gift really isn't the essence, right? It's really about the the gift is an extension of the giver, of the love of the giver. And so what's terrible when we grasp after the gift is we're making an idol out of the gift yeah. and not recognizing the love of the giver. Yeah. It's a and, great way to put it, yeah. And so as it pertains to my vocation, uh, the Lord made it very clear. He said, Edward... Um, you're a call to the priesthood. And of course that needs to be confirmed in time practically sure. through the discernment of religious community. Of course, ultimately the bishop who is who has that charism of discernment and kind of confirming through the gift of priesthood and confirming that call. But I was convinced interiorly at least and then waiting for that to be confirmed over time. But the Lord said, and I, I know you have such a reverence and love for the sacred priesthood because it's a sacred priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to always uh, to preserve that deepest reverence and gratitude. And I don't want you to grasp after it, even as you are being called to it. Mm. And so I'm going to offer you a, a grace. And I want you to prepare from this day onward until so much that on the doorstep of your priestly ordination, literally the day of your priestly ordination, if your bishop, and it would end up being Archbishop Nauman, if on the day morning of your priestly ordination, so you're already a transitional deacon, that you would have such interior freedom and that you would be so convinced that you are not worthy of this gift because nobody is, that if Archbishop Nauman, like two hours before would say, hey, Edward, this is just a beautiful day for many who are going to be mm-hmm. ordained, but not for you. You know, let's just face it, you're you're not worthy of the sacred priesthood and you will never be ordained. And 
if I could hear those words and be completely convinced of that truth and completely at peace, then I'll know I will have prepared well and that I will not have been grasping after the gift. Hmm. And so, of course, you know, practically no bishop would ever do that. You know, if, if, if he was going to put a stop to it, you know, he'd let yeah, you know far be, in advance. That was definitely the voice of the enemy that father assumed there. Sure. Just, yeah. For, to give the example. But yeah. no, but uh, the, um, but the Lord was inviting me to prepare even to that kind of ludicrous type of yeah. uh, absurd example that that I would have that type of interior freedom mm-hmm. and so freed from grasping. And so in fact, June 18th, 2011, as I was praying, if I were to hear those words from Archbishop Nauman, I would have just been completely at peace. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a remarkable grace that the Lord formed me in that right. way by God's grace. And I pray that ever since I've been striving to continue to preserve that awe and reverence yeah. of this sacred priesthood of Jesus Christ that does not belong to anyone, uh, belongs to him alone. Yeah. And that it's just a share in this, his own sacred priesthood. Mm. That's wonderful. I was thinking on, um, oh gosh, I, I saw a video the other day. I'm not going to act like I know science. Like like chemistry, certainly not. I got a D plus in, in general chemistry in college. Okay, I do not know chemistry very well. However, I did see this video of a, a copper, well, that's what pennies are, is they're copper. And um, it was being set on fire, basically, you know, in front of a blowtorch for, you know, just a few, a few seconds is all it really takes to get that thing, you know, piping hot, glowing red. And it's suspended by this wire and, you know, suspended. It's lowered into a flask just to hover above a little flask of like acetone. And, you know, they, they showed the example that if this, if this copper penny um, was just exposed to the air, it would cool off and, you know, just as, just as quickly as it was that it heated up basically, you know, just a, a matter of seconds. And yet when this copper penny is, is uh, suspended in this closed environment um, just above this uh, acetone, it stays hot. It's protected from the outside environment, and yet it's still air that's inside this flask. And it's protected. It's you know protected from the wind. It's protected from the elements. And there's a there's a catalytic um, reaction going on between the acetone and the copper penny. It's um, the heat is acting as I don't know. Yeah, this is where I'm out of my depth. But the point being that whatever it was that was preserving the heat in the copper, whether it be the, it was a catalytic reaction of the acetone um, mixing with the hot copper um, begetting acetic acid or um, something like that. The point being that the copper stayed glowing red Mm. and that we, as the copper, our hearts, if you were to just take this example and apply it to the spiritual life, that we have to suspend our hearts in environments, if it be well disposed to, to maintain that glow, like the, I mean, that's the, you are the light of the world. Like Jesus is telling us you, you are the salt of the earth. Yes. You are the light of the world right there in Matthew five. It's one of the things that he leads out, leads off with. It's like, you don't put a lamp under a bushel. It's going to catch the house on fire. You don't put it under a bed. You put that sucker on a stand for everybody to see. And he's, he's saying the same thing to us is that we as light of the world, when we dispose ourselves properly and maintain and govern and guard that flame within us, burning within us well, mm. it will remain always. It will remain. 
and it will bear beautiful and abundant, you know, 30, 60, 100 fold fruit. Yes, Lord. Amen. So you became a priest. That's pretty cool. Praise the Lord. Yeah, just flashing back to, I think it was like seek and, you know, everyone's got a, um, a dozen or so Father Mike quotes in their pocket, Father Mike Schmitz. And he, he said to start off one of his talks, like, how many priests are there in the world, you think? You know, 20,000, 30,000, 16,000, whatever. And then one guy in the very back, he said, one. He screamed, one. And, he, and Father Mike's like, somebody get that guy a cookie. Anyway, but just the, yeah, like there's one priesthood in which all priests participate in. Like you are, you are participating in the eternal high priesthood of Christ. You, Father, are Father insofar as you are a son and bride of Christ. Amen. And I don't know, it's just, it really gets me thinking like that. When you have such a proper, properly disposed heart um, and, and disposed soul unto your vocation, that calling which you, which you received, that you answered um, and you adopted and became and are becoming it's just it's it's so beautiful and it's hard not to just acknowledge that beauty so what's your life with jesus in the eucharist look like today like as a priest i'm sure it's unique obviously you say the mass you know what's that look like for you on a daily basis yes so kind of to preface this i was inspired uh, i did one of my degrees higher degrees it's kind of a roman degree and not well known you have an stl I, an stl right yeah in, in theology and i did it on the priest victim theology and the writings of Fulton Sheen hmm. who's written different works uh, on the priesthood and I believe the year of the priesthood maybe was 2008 it was when I was in the seminary and preparing and that's kind of when it came to mind and we were already doing Eucharistic holy hours on a daily basis but it's a particularly important for the priest and so yeah today uh, I make it a priority first thing in the morning uh, however early that might be. In fact, I had to travel the other day. I was like, well, I just need to work backwards. So that means I need to wake up at three o'clock and that's when I got to start my Eucharistic Holy Hour. But you know, it's often it's like 4.30, but that's that's when I can guarantee that I'm going to give that undivided attention. You know, the priest uh, offered this succinct um, exhortation and I'm like, I completely agree. You know, what someone chooses to do first thing in the morning reveals their priorities. And if that means remaining in bed, then, you know, objectively, right? And so I was like, well, I know I want this to be my priority. And so that's what I do. So first uh, first hour of the morning, the Eucharistic Holy Hour, also in preparation for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. I try to make a second Holy Hour. Well, no, I always make a second Holy Hour. It's not always in the presence of the Eucharist. Sometimes it's just a, a, an hour of prayer. But first first Holy Hour of the day, absolutely first thing in the morning. It's just it's so life-giving. You know, some people might say it's a sacrifice. I mean, it might be a sacrifice for like a minute or two when it's really, really difficult because you're so tired. But when, you, when I get into prayer, I am just amped up. It is so life-giving. It is a <laughs> gift. It would be... It would be heartbreaking. And in fact, I'm trying to think, there was, I think, since I've been a priest, I think twice, twice I've accidentally overslept my alarm or just I didn't hear it. And so, but I still needed to offer mass. Thanks be to God, by God's mercy, someone like came to wake me up. But there's two times when I'm entering into the holy sacrifice and I just feel so poor and I'm not recollected and I need 
that time to just be recollected and be in the Lord's presence. And so it was really difficult. I mean, I, I can't imagine. And of course, those are completely accidental, but still it was so difficult to just properly enter into the holy mm. sacrifice. So it's just a, a tremendous gift that the Lord gives to me. Like there's zero sacrifice. He's doing me such a remarkable favor in allowing me to be before him, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So that's so, so beautiful. And then of course, just to be able to pray the holy sacrifice. And I think in order to pray the holy sacrifice, I think someone needs to prepare by praying before mass and after mass so that sure. one has the best possibility of being actually being able to to pray in the, the zone, the mass. You got to get in the zone, Father. Absolutely. You know, my favorite priest saint is uh, Saint Padre Pio. And everyone just talks about how he offers the holy sacrifice. And it said that there would be non-practicing Catholics, fallen away Catholics, agnostics coming to his mass, perhaps out of curiosity. And maybe attending one of his masses wouldn't immediately convict them of the reality of the Eucharist. But I think it's undeniable. And one of my yeah. favorite images of Padre Pio offering a mass, there's no denying anyone who experienced his mass and see they'd say, well, I might not believe that that's Jesus in the Eucharist, but he sure that does. man definitely yeah. believes that. And it's just extraordinarily powerful. So can I, can I speak into that real quick? Just um, one of your your brothers, Father Mirko Socio. I love this brother. Amen. So he was in Lawrence, Kansas, once upon a time at the St. Lawrence mm -hmm. Center. And he was, he was um, celebrating Mass. And this man, it was one of those moments for me. It was one of those moments that you just described reflecting on Padre Pio elevating the host uh, at the consecration and being like, whoa. This man believes. Father Mirko Socio, he, when he elevated the host at the consecration, I was like, whoa. Not only did he look, I mean, he looked like a, he looked so in love. He, he looked like his heart was pierced. Amen as he held our Lord in his hands. And he had, the Lord was suspended in the air for, I don't know, a minute or two. It was profound. Amen. It was a baptism in the Holy Spirit moment for me. I couldn't go on living life the same Praise way because of God. him, um, because of his conviction in the way in which he celebrated the, the liturgy that day. And you know, that was just the first. That was just the first among many um, masses that he celebrated in the same exact way. But wow. remarkable. His uh, receptivity to allowing the Lord to enkindle in his heart Eucharistic amazement had that mm -hmm. profound impact on you. Yeah. Yeah. But praise the Lord. Yeah. I'm not alone in that. I know everybody in the in the church that day was like, whoa. Praise him. Yeah, it was really cool. I love this brother so much. He's mm. he's been such an instrument of grace in my life and in so many countless others. So yeah. Shout out to Father Miracle Socio. Uh, and, and STL, by the way, which is what uh, Father mentioned just briefly, and I might cut it, but mine, I might not. Uh, it's a sacred theology licentiate. So basically in the eyes of the church, you can teach in a seminary. Um, it allows you to be considered a theologian in your own right. Um, so yeah, not that you were doing I don't know. Yeah. Did you get your STL for, uh, via obedience or because of your order at the time? Or do you remember? Our order, yeah. I wanted all of the priests to get STLs. Oh, okay. So. Gotcha. 
Well, yeah. So you do two holy hours a day, casual. Yeah. So yeah, first always, always at least one Eucharistic holy hour first thing in the morning, and the second, yeah, another wow. just hour of prayer at least. So I, I, I try to spend four to five hours of prayer, and that includes right, um, mass, the holy sacrifice of the mass, and yeah. then one of the things that I received already being influenced and being formed by the sisters of the apostles of the interior life was practicing a thanksgiving uh, after reception of holy communion and the reality of the theology of the real presence and, yeah. and the saints are replete in their teaching about this is that the eucharistic presence continues to subsist even after we've swallowed him so at least for about 15 minutes, so it's kind of a question of biochemistry, right? It's a question of how long yeah. does it take for that sacred host to dissolve within our digestive system? And the saints would say it, it takes about 15 minutes. So we're living tabernacles for 15 minutes. And one of the things, once again, that just rocked me from the moment that I learned that when I was 19 years old, mm -hmm. I've always set aside that time at least 15 minutes. In fact, there's anecdotes of the saints who this is not just like something that some people make up like. So St. Teresa of Avila would exhort her sister. She would say, do not waste the hour that follows reception after Holy Communion. Yeah. St. Louis de Montfort, no matter how many pastoral engagements he had, would always, without fail, spend at least half an hour after receiving the Holy Eucharist, right? He would offer Mass. We have... St. Aloysius Gonzaga and St. Ignatius of Loyola, every time they receive the Eucharist, they would be on their knees for two hours after they received Holy Communion. So mm. all of these gestures, practices, it points to this reality that yeah. he remains present afterward. What a, what a remarkable gift. And yeah. so really to make that time and to foster and you know, and I think any lover knows this, right? You think about spouses, anyone who's entered into the marital embrace, you spend time. No one's just trying to go immediately to their next engagement. You want to spend time with your beloved. And St. Augustine, he kind of alludes to this, that's that practice of Thanksgiving after communion, it helps dispose us to a more fruitful reception of the sacraments because the sacrament, as we know, right? All the sacraments, ex opere, ex operato, ex opere, operato, ex opere, operantis. In other words, that the fruitfulness of any sacrament depends on the disposition of the person receiving it. Right. So we want to continue to dispose ourselves. And disposition means how much love do we have in our hearts? And mm -hmm. love, as if you were to ask, children how do you spell love uh they would say t-i-m-e right you and it's that's one of the concrete ways of how we demonstrate love is through yeah. time so that's just a real practical beautiful thing i was able to receive that teaching and just fostering that and continuing yeah. to enkindle that uh, eucharistic amazement and a thanksgiving with him yeah it's a great word i'm i'm being convicted of that uh more and more even as you're as you're just saying that um it used to be a common practice for me, but uh, having children and whatnot, uh, yeah, it just hasn't happened in a while. And I think you're, you're convicting me of, of trying to get back to those and roots. And God bless you, brother. I want to affirm you mm. and all of the parents out there, all the priests, 
before even the priest, the father sees you and your sacrifice mm-hmm. and I see it. And um, I know it's so difficult because your time mm-hmm. is no longer your own. And in many ways, loving parents are really obedient to the responsibilities of taking care of their children. Right. And even if that means, right, we got to practically do something else, but, you know, kind of as best we can and recognize like, hey, we're going to try to foster this time, you know, in these mm-hmm. 15 minutes and being with the Lord. And and I think a yeah. practical thing, if we go to mass or especially like on a Sunday mass, and if it's like a larger, depending on the congregation, if we spent, I know it's not always possible with younger children, but if we do have the ability to sit up closer to the front, then we're going to mm-hmm. receive the Eucharist. And usually you get like seven to 10 or 12 minutes of Thanksgiving already within the mass. Yeah. Right. And so, but I just want to affirm you in <laughs> that and the Lord definitely sees and he knows what a sacrifice yeah. that is. So, yeah, no, I, that's the, you know, as, as you've, you, you did more than just allude to it, but as the saints themselves have made explicit, like that time is the, you know, arguably the most sacred time of our life. Um, it's, it's the time in which the Lord Jesus Christ is within us. And all prayer that we pray is actually, um, we participate in his prayer. Like he's praying on our behalf um, to the Father. And that, yeah, that time of prayer, uh, regardless of what it is that we choose to fill it with, whether it be Thanksgiving or petition or whatever, um, that has a special potency, a special power about it, about it for sure. Yeah. And even beyond that, taking that one step further, you're saying like we, you know, going back to the whole light of the world thing, like this, this incarnate reality of Jesus Christ dwelling within us. And it's actually kind of ironic because like, yes, his, the physical presence of the Lord in the Eucharist is, is being dissolved into us. But we actually, uh, with a proper, di- proper disposition of heart, like we are being, um, <laughs> you're becoming him. Mm. Like that's the the principle of assimilation, I believe right. that Saint Augustine refers to, right? It's yeah, um, exactly right. The the superior being absorbs the lesser being. So yeah. when we eat food, you predator know, and praise, we eat a example. piece of steak. You know, yeah. that steak becomes us, not the mm-hmm. other way around. But with the Eucharist, where we the whole process of divinization, I believe Saint Thomas Aquinas succinctly puts what's the goal or finality or the end of the incarnation it's divinization mm-hmm. so that man might become god like god yeah, yeah like god yeah so yeah father so many of our brothers and sisters in the church today or maybe they're not a member of the church or maybe they're one of our protestants brothers and sisters or maybe they don't necessarily believe at all and um through no fault of their own per se but just like what what would what advice would you give to anybody who's on the fence about this whole eucharist Yes. Yeah. I believe it would depend on the nature of the particular difficulty that might one might have in receiving this teaching. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, right, is is it someone who's Catholic and already understands all of the theology and what the church actually teaches? Mm-hmm. Or is it someone maybe who isn't as aware or maybe fallen away and therefore they have more of a philosophical difficulty of trying to wrap their mind around mm-hmm. it or something specifically theological or so I, I suppose it would be hard to Fair kind enough. of offer advice unless yeah, usually I, I'm not a, a yeah excellent teacher in this way. So very often I'm engaging in the Socratic method and just sure. really entering into genuine dialogue and really trying to understand where this person is coming from. And then from that mm. asking questions to uh, and continuing that dialogue that's a good evangelization technique in general that i think everybody uh, ought to adopt 
is to just sincerely care and seek to understand um, our, our fellow brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, if nothing else, brothers and sisters in humanity, in fallenness, you know, uh, in, in uh, having hearts that are hungry, in having hearts that have holes in them that only God can fill. Yeah, um, I, I think that's very pastoral. Um, any advice you'd share maybe with somebody who's having a hard time like wrapping their heart? Maybe they believe it, but they're just, they've never like experienced it for themselves. What would you say to somebody like that? Yes. I believe it's, I forget which apostle says this, but simply says, come and see. Mm. And what a what a beautiful invitation. And it was to come and see and to, yeah, Andrew, the invitation was, yeah. Philip, I forget. To, hey, how about you? Would you be willing to meet Jesus? Would you be willing to spend time with him? Yeah. And I believe truths are best assimilated and communicated in relationship and not in some abstract setting. Yeah. I don't know how many people who have come to clarity about the truth or theological truth, just studying books, solely studying books and yeah. only in that context. Um, I believe the truth also has to be nourished in the context of love which can only occur in interpersonal relationships mm -hmm. and so also perhaps to reach out perhaps reaching out to okay someone who i do know who does have a relationship with our lord in the eucharist and who would be gentle with us isn't going to sure and accompany us and be like hey can i talk to you about this or you know can you say more about your relationship with the lord or what has helped you or would you be willing to take me to Eucharistic adoration? Mm. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not meant to do this alone. And I feel like the Americanism of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you don't get it, then don't, you know, don't make a fool of yourself. Kind of, uh, counter is a counter. It dissuades us from courage. It just, it dissuades us from, um, vulnerability. Yes. So I think what you're pointing to is just, you know, don't be afraid to ask somebody to do this with you because, um, yeah, none of the apostles were called in a vacuum. And I think what you were mentioning was Philip calling Bartholomew, mm. um, come and see. He's like, what, what, you know, from Nazareth, really? Come on, come and see, come and see. And then, you know, behold, there's light in whom there is no guile, the Lord said, wow, you, you have a pure, you have a pure heart. You have a heart that burns. So yeah, don't be afraid. Know yourself and uh, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody who you admire and look up to um, or at least respect and, and yeah, and see what they would have to say. Yeah, because relationship is not one way. It's not one-sided. Um, like I said earlier, showing up's half the battle, but um, it takes two to tango, Father. It yes. takes two. Yeah. What do you think the Lord is doing in the church right now? And like, what's your dream for the church today? People are familiar with vicious cycles and perhaps people hear all the time about all the negative things that are occurring, whether it's within the church or just within the world at large. News usually becomes news because it's bad news, right? Mm. 
So they're, it's not balanced. They're not really reporting all of the wonderful things. How about why isn't every single parish reporting the Eucharistic miracle that occurs at the altar and every transubstantiation that should be making headlines every single day, right? But we don't hear about that. And so to kind of answer your question, Holy Spirit inspired virtuous cycles are infinitely more powerful than vicious cycles that we hear about. So my dream is that that we would be generous and courageous in receiving like the Holy Mother of God, the Mother of God's charism. I think if you need to succinctly state it is receiving God at every moment of her life. Mm. She was receptive to God and look what a superpower that was in her life. And she responded perfectly to yeah. that. And it's such a simple thing, simple, but not easy. And if we would all imitate that, then I believe we would be witnessing those Holy Spirit inspired virtuous cycles. Yeah. Everywhere in the world. How do you uh, foster docility? Well, as an aside, I know Father Jacques Philippe in his work in the School of the Holy Spirit systematically and succinctly addresses that. But really first and foremost, per perhaps the simplest thing maybe that's overlooked is to want to love the Lord and to want to listen to his voice. I think that can't be bypassed. That, that's kind yeah. of the first precondition, right? It's not sufficient, but it's the necessary condition for docility, for that radical cooperation with the Lord's yeah. action and, and movement in our life. Mm. And begging the Holy yeah. Spirit, Holy Spirit, please, please, Come fill this place. Holy Spirit, please. I, I wish to be possessed by you. Mm. Right. Yeah. I, I, hmm. I, I think it, it, reflecting as well, like what it kind of comes down to is what you're filled with. Um, because if we are filled with the Lord and holy things and good things, then when those promptings do come, it's going to be as if, you know, it's a feather in a wind turned by a breeze mm. as opposed to um, a giant mast um, that is that needs to be oiled, kind of like realizing what's happening. Kind of, you know, a feather in the wind is going to be, it's going to be moved very easily. Yes. Um, as opposed to, you know, something that's very heavy and um, blockish and stubborn and, you know, whatever. Um, I think part of it is a grace. I can't, we, I don't think we can discount the, the graced factor of some people are just more naturally docile than others. Uh, however, I think what we can do to foster the facility is to just ensure that what it is that we're filling ourselves with, because whether we want to admit it or not, like what we do, how we spend our time, how we speak, you know, the content that we uh, consume, um, that we digest, our interactions, everything, the people that we spend our time with, um, these are all ways in which we um, have the active ability, the agency 
um, to determine what we are being filled with and um, who's doing the filling, really. So I feel like if we do a good job of um, filling ourselves with the Lord, then um, then we're going to be able to know His voice and to to receive His promptings with a more docile heart. Um, I'm just thinking about the most docile and loving people that I know, and they are they are people who um, unequivocally are filling themselves with things of the Lord. Indeed, you, you know Mary, our, our blessed mother. I'm no, I have no doubt that she was one of these people. Is one of these people? She's not. She's not dead, and neither is our Lord. They both have beating hearts somewhere, which is really cool to think about. Beating right now, um, out of love for us. How beautiful! Well, Father, thank you for being here. Praise Him. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your yes to to be on the show, and thank you for your priesthood. Thank you for your fatherhood, and um, for your apostolate. Everything that you're doing uh, to bring the kingdom of God and to to be the physical incarnate heart of the Father by participating in the one eternal priesthood of Christ in this little neck of the woods uh, here in Northeast Kansas. So uh, God bless you and uh, God bless your, your, your priesthood and your fatherhood in this, in this, in this land. Praise him. I receive. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for your sonship and your fatherhood and your ministry. God bless you. Know my prayers. Thank you. Father, would you be so kind as to, to wrap us out in prayer? Certainly. Thank you. The name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Most loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you, we thank you, we love you. Through the intercession of the Holy Mother of God, grant us the grace to receive from the fullness of your loving providence, to correspond with your grace fully at every moment, whatever the cost in becoming great saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. This has been New Manna. We'll see you next week.